invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. This morning we've been, I've been preaching through the book of Revelation this summer. And some of the comments that I've heard have kind of led me to this illustration to start with. I've heard some people hear about the sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments. Today we're going to look at the bold judgments. And some folks who are believers who know Jesus Christ have said, man, this is scary. The people who don't know Jesus Christ, who are clueless, aren't afraid of anything. They're the ones that ought to be, it ought to be a wake-up call for them. And so let's acknowledge this morning that we're shaky on the future. We're not real sure about what the future holds. You know, some people drive to one of these places on the side of the road and have somebody read their palm or look into a crystal and say, well, here's your future. I read a story this week about a fortune teller and a frog. Frog went in to have his fortune read, and the fortune teller gave him what he thought was good news. You're going to meet a beautiful young woman. From the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know everything about you. She'll be compelled to get close to you. You will fascinate her. And the frog said, where am I? Am I at a singles club? The fortune teller said, no, you're in a biology class. Somebody just got it. There's others are going, you'll have to get it explained to you over lunch. Isn't it amazing, though, that we're so preoccupied at times by the future, but folks, we don't hold the future. It, it amazed me to read some of the stories. L listen to just a few of these folks who predicted the future. Lee DeForest, in 1926, who was the inventor of the cathode ray tube, the CRT, said this, theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development which... We should waste little time dreaming about. Thomas J. Watson in 1943, the chairman of the board of IBM, said, I think there is a world market for about five computers. A recording company expert in 1962 said, We don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. Listen to this one by Henry Kissinger, former, Hen former Secretary of State. As quoted in U.S. News and World Report, January 9th of 1989. More than at any time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leading to despair and utter hopelessness. The other leading to a total destruction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. I liked what Corey Tim Boom said. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That's where we are this morning. We're trusting an unknown future to a known God. As I've read this past week and just looked at the passage that we're going to be looking at, I want to start with one verse from 1 Thessalonians before I even read Revelation 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says this, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What you're going to see this morning is the final culmination pouring out of God's wrath. And if you thought the seals were bad, if you thought the trumpets were bad, hang on. These vials of wrath are worse than anything we've seen. Let me read the scene in heaven before the vials are poured out. John speaking says, then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, 
which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang a song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke, from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's take a look first at these bold judgments. And we hear John say, I saw another sign. For those of you that have been hanging in there throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen this numerous times, sometimes in this case twice in one chapter, that John sees a vision. He says, behold, I look and here's what I saw. And a little bit later in the same passage, behold, I looked and here's what I saw, introducing a brand new vision. And I think about John, if you put yourself in the place of John, what was he instructed to do in chapter 1? He was told, write down everything you see. Well, what he has seen is incredible. Some of what he has seen, he can't even put into words because he's never seen anything like that before. So what do you do when you see something you've never seen before? You say that it was like this or it's like that. And that's what John, that's the best way he can describe it. And some of what John is seeing is the very throne room of heaven with God seated on it and Jesus sitting at his right hand. He's seen the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. He has seen these plagues that have been poured out on mankind. And he's seen the reaction to these plagues. And he comes to this scene in heaven. And he says, I looked and I saw something great and marvelous. There's that word megas again. Mega, something huge. And he described it as being marvelous, literally something to be wondered at. It's something you just stare out with your eyes wide open and your mouth wide open because it's like something you've never seen before. What's he looking at? He's looking at the throne room of God. He's looking at these seven angels and he describes what they're wearing. You kind of wonder, why is that important? Why is wardrobe so important? What he is seeing is a picture of the purity that comes from God. And what God is about to do comes from a God who is holy and righteous and high and lifted up and pure and innocent. A God of mercy and a God of grace is about to pour out wrath for the final time. In fact, the word wrath, you need to know, means rage or strong passion. As if the person is breathing hard. It is violent, passionate, outburst of anger. That's what's coming. Have we ever seen the wrath of God before? Yes. Where did we see it? Jessica mentioned it before they sang. At the cross. 
Men and women, one thing I don't want us to forget, one thing I don't want us to miss in all of that this morning is this. You and I deserve the wrath of God. Why? Because we are sinners. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are separated from God. And what Jesus did at the cross should have been poured out on us. But when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because the only time ever in, in forever, in eternity, God turned his back. Why? Because God hates sin. And he poured out on his only begotten son the fullness of his wrath that should have been ours. Now, what you're going to see poured out today, again, the fullness of God's wrath. Who's it being poured out on? It's being poured out on sinners who have rejected Jesus. And in case you hadn't been keeping up in Revelation, there have been opportunities to repent, even during the tribulation. 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Two witnesses that they, rather than follow their preaching of the gospel, they put them to death. And then celebrated over their death. It, it amazes me how in chapter 10 it says they sent gifts to one another because these two men were finally killed. Now they didn't stay dead. Three and a half days later, they stand back up on their feet and God calls them up to heaven. And even in the midst of the plagues, we see these angels or we see eagles flying throughout mid-heaven and saying, repent, respond to the gospel. And even this morning, you're going to see the response of the people. It says they're holding harps. I don't know what your picture of a harp is. I have a picture of, it, it literally is the word lyre. It's what David used to play in, uh, in the Old Testament. He played it for Saul. It's a lot like a guitar and a lot like a harp. But how in this scene of heaven could they be playing harps and singing praise songs knowing what's about to happen? Folks, it's because the saints at the altar have been praying for God to avenge his people. In fact, they asked the question early in Revelation, how much longer, God? And God said, just a little bit longer. Why? Because he's not willing for any to perish. And so in the midst of that, this worship scene in heaven, John sees the temple filled with smoke, an emblem of God's presence, an emblem of God's, a significance of God's majesty, Isaiah saw that in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, I, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the temple of God. I saw God high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, and, and smoke is filling the temple. Well, smoke fills the temple so much in this case that people can't even enter the temple. Until the plagues are over, nobody can enter the temple. The temple was an indication of God's presence. And one thing you need to know, in the new heaven and new earth, won't be any temple. If you jump ahead to about chapter 21 of Revelation, it says there's no temple there. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son are the temple. The presence of God is going to be with us forever in eternity. So this is this, this holy of holies. No one's able to enter until the plagues are finished. Let's look at the plagues for a minute. In chapter 16, I'm not going to read this verse by verse, but I'm going to walk you through these seven plagues. you got some space there to write uh, just kind of what the capsule, what's the highlight of these seven plagues. John says in chapter 16, I heard a loud voice from the temple. Whose voice does that have to be? 
It's got to be God's voice. Why? Because nobody else can be in there. It's from the presence of God is God's voice with this loud, megas voice. And he says to the seven angels, go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And I don't know what picture you have of a bowl, but some translations use the word vile. It's really more of a shallow dish. This is not like a waiter or waitress coming to your table with a pitcher of water, taking their time, pouring it out. No, this is a shallow dish saucer that when God says pour, it is just emptied on the people. And folks, I get a sense of a little bit of slow pace in the in the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. One of the awesome things about this and the awful thing about this is these plagues come one right after another. You don't get over one thing before another one's being poured out. And it should have brought man to a hopeless position where they would turn to God because they know where it's coming from. But they don't. One thing that's so devastating about these plagues is they're cumulative. They just build up on each other. Let's look at the first one. First one's poured out on earth. And it says, A loathsome and malignant sores on those with the mark of the beast and who have worshipped the image of the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. He set up a throne on, he on earth. People are coming to worship him. The false prophet has made everybody create an image. And then he's made it appear as if this image is speaking and calling people to worship the Antichrist. And he made them take a mark upon themselves to show that they were loyal to the Antichrist. What happens to the ones who don't have the mark? Well, they can't buy or sell. They also are put to death. And so here comes this wrath upon all of those people oozing ulcerous sores over the whole earth, every person. Then on the sea, the next one is poured out on the sea, and it becomes blood like dead men. Everything in the sea dies. Think about this. 70% of the earth's surface is ocean. Now, we've seen in the seal judgments, we've seen in the trumpet judgment, that some of the waters of the earth have become foul or have dried up. But whatever's left gets taken out at this moment. It all becomes like blood. So what does that mean? That means that all the fish, all the things that could come out of the ocean to feed people are dead. Then on the rivers and the springs, they become blood. And one of the angels says, basically, they, made, they took the blood of the prophets and the martyrs that were preaching the gospel of Christ. They deserve what they're getting. I want to stop right there for a minute. So do you. What do we deserve? What you deserve is what you've earned. I, I'm a sinner. Apart from Christ, I deserve the sores on my body. I deserve everything that's poured out here. But thanks to God, praise God that through Jesus Christ, I don't get what I deserve. Because of His mercy, I don't get what I deserve. And because of his grace, I get something I don't deserve. And what is that? Forgiveness. Eternal life. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace. But if you can imagine the rivers have become blood, you've got these sores that are oozing from your body, and everybody's got them. And you can't even go wash yourself off because there's no water anymore. And right after that, the fourth vial is dumped 
on the earth and it's placed on the sun and it gives the sun the ability, whether it's solar flares or whatever, to burn and scorch men. So not only do you have these sores all over your body, now you're burning up. And what would you like to do? I want some aloe. I'd at least like to go soak in a cold bath. You can't. And then right after that, if that's not bad enough, the lights get turned out. Because the fourth, or excuse me, the fifth bowl, the fifth vial is poured out on the throne of the beast, the Antichrist. The one who is sitting there calling people to worship him, the vial is poured out on him and his kingdom is darkened. The lights go out on his kingdom. Party is over. The people who have been, I'm sure at this point, coming to the beast and saying, save us. Save us. And the beast has been lying to him this whole time. If you'll just worship me, everything will be okay. Take this mark upon you. Everything will be okay. And what happens? Lights go out. Party's over. And then we have the final two bowls. And one thing we see in the fifth bowl is, yes, the beast had some limited power. But it was short-lived. We saw last week, his time was short and he knew it. We get to the sixth bowl. The Euphrates dries up. This great river that plays prominently that in the Tigris River throughout the pages of the Bible dries up. Why is that significant? Because here's what's happened. The sun has melted every ice anything on earth. There's been flooding. Probably bridges have been washed out on the Euphrates. Now the water has turned into blood. And what's happening? The armies are gathering to this place called Armageddon or Armageddon. A little bit more about that in a minute. But it seems almost merciful (laughs) that the water's dried up so the kings can get to Armageddon. It's not merciful because they're going there to lose a battle. And then the seventh is poured out upon the air and you hear this voice from the temple say what? It is done. It's done. And what happens? What's the result Lightning and thunder, an earthquake, the worst ever in the history of the world. What happens with this seismological thing? That's what the word for uh, earthquake is, is seismos, where we get seismology and those kind of things from, those words from. It, It is the worst in the history of the world. The great city is split into thirds. Islands and mountains are gone. What does that mean? Well, islands are basically mountains underwater, right? You see a little bit of it sticking up. It's an island. They're gone. The mountains that they had looked at all over, especially in the Holy Land, there's mountains everywhere. They're gone. They're just level. So do you remember earlier in Revelation when people saw the power of God? What did they do? They ran to the mountains to get into a cave to protect themselves. There's nowhere to run anymore. Not to mention the fact it's dark. The mountains are gone. And then... These hundred pound hailstones. Literally, it means a thousand shekels worth. A thousand shekels was the most that a man could carry. So some scholars say this could be somewhere between about 45 to 135 pounds. Hailstones. We had hail here last November. They described it as golf ball size. I imagine there have been grapefruit size hail. There's been softball size hail. Folks, this is a hundred pound hailstone. And where is it falling? It's falling over Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. I want you all to watch 
a brief video, and then I'm going to explain it to you and show it to you again. Watch this. All right, next time I'm going to play it with some sound. But let me describe what you're looking at. You're, you're standing, the person taking the, the video is standing on Tel Megiddo. You're looking over the valley of Megiddo. This is Armageddon. I've driven through there four times on trips through the Holy Land. and I've never seen anything like it, this flat plain that has mountains on either side of it. And some significant historical battles have taken there. And toward the end of it, is this tell, which basically means a civilization or mountain where there's ruins called Megiddo. And you go up there, you see a Canaanite temple, you see just layers of civilization that have taken place. And this is where you're going to see 100-pound hailstones. The last time I was there was January of 2012. We got hailed on. What you're seeing there, if you see the lady that lightning hits right behind her, that's my wife, Eva, Okay. I'm standing under the shelter putting my chapstick on. But, you know, she's back there. She's taking the, she's like pulling up the last little bit, and we see lightning. And so we've edited it down just for this. But now knowing what you're looking at, you're looking at Armageddon. And the hailstones that hit us was about dime-sized hail. And there's a cistern on Tel Megiddo. And so I tell our guide, Mick is the one standing there with the blue coat on talking to us. You're going to hear him speak here in just a minute. But I said, Mick, let's go get in a cistern. Because we're getting pelted by dime-sized hail. Imagine 100 pounds of hail. Watch it again. Take place. The army of good against the army of evil. And the angels is going to come down and aid the army of good against the army of evil. All right, I would say that Mick doesn't know his theology real well, hadn't read the Bible, because it's not the army of good coming down. I mean, it's not like the angels are going to come down and help. It's the angels are going to come down and take over. It ain't going to be a long battle. But before the battle starts, these 100-pound hailstones, and what's happening, the whole world's being brought there for this final battle. Now, last two points this morning is the response to these judgments, the response to the plagues. First of all, let's look at the Lord's enemies. And really two responses. We could take time to read through, but it's repeated. First, what do they do? The, the lights are turned out. The ocean is turned to blood. The springs are no longer drinkable because they're like blood. 100-pound hailstones, thunder, lightning. The world's coming to an end. What do they do? Instead of say, God, save us. The ones with the mark of the beast blaspheme the name of God. They curse the name that could save them. And folks, it amazes me in the generation we're in. You hear it in traveling about, whether it's at school or work. You hear people take God's name in vain. And I almost want to say to them, hey, why don't you call out to somebody you know? I had a youth intern that I played golf with when I was a teenager and his name was Bill, and we played with a guy that we had got paired up with. You know how that happens when there's only two of you. Get paired up. This guy kept taking God's name in vain. Bill finally said, what's your father's name? He said, Steve. So every time Bill hit a bad shot, he goes, Steve. 
And finally the guy said, what are you doing? He said, you take my father's name in vain, I'm taking your father's name in vain. Isn't it amazing? The one name that could have saved them is the one that they hate. Why? Because they have bought the lie of the beast and the dragon, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And the second thing it says repeatedly, what would they do? They did not repent. Even at the last opportunity, the reason they're making a big deal about this is God is still offering mercy. Repent. What does that mean? It means to turn. Quit doing what you're doing. And turn back to the God that could save you, and they won't do it. Let's look at the reaction of the Lord's servants. Because in the midst of this, the angels are saying, righteous are you. What does that mean? God, you are innocent in all this. You have withheld your anger. You have withheld your wrath for thousands of years. And you've told us this day was coming. You've offered opportunities to turn. And so they worship. And the one that really blew me away this week was just that statement. In chapter 16, verse 6, when it says, they deserve it. They blaspheme your name. They won't repent. They've killed the very people that were telling the good news. They tried to kill the 144,000, but because they had the mark of God on them, they couldn't do it. They started worshiping an image that they created. They deserve what they get. But the scene is one of worship. And here's some of the words. First is righteous. Meaning just, fair, equitable in character, innocent. As you worship God this week, these four words, I just want these to be four words you use to worship God this week because first of all, He's righteous. Second, He's holy. They say, righteous are you God who was and who is and who is to come and Lord, you are holy. Holy means separate. It means set apart. It means pure. God's not like us. His ways are not our ways. If we were God, we probably wouldn't have done things the way God did. We would have poured the wrath out a lot sooner. God's patient. But folks, don't miss this. God's holy. And He will not put up with sin forever. Because He hates sin. God's holy. Then they said, God, you are almighty. What does that mean? All ruling, all powerful. God, yeah, we see this puny dragon that was defeated at the cross. We see his henchman, the beast that we call the Antichrist. We see the one, the second beast that is the false prophet. And people in the earth were bowing down and worshiping them. They are not almighty. But God, you are. And you're proving it right now. And then last, you're true. God, you're true. Literally, you're real and you're trustworthy. God, you have been a God of your word. What did the Antichrist tell him? Take this mark upon you and you'll be okay. The false prophet backed him up in that. Just worship the beast and you're going to be okay. They're liars. Why? Because they're speaking on behalf of the dragon, the devil, the serpent of old. And what's he done since the beginning? 
He has lied. He's the father of all lies, according to John's gospel. And yet, the servants of God are around the throne, worshiping him. I want to close with this thought. I don't know how you view worship. I was speaking at a, at a camp up in Ohio with a group from West Virginia, and the youth pastor's wife came to me in tears one day. I said, well, what are you crying about? Because we've been talking about worship. That there's two girls in my youth group that are just, they think it's awfully arrogant of God to expect us to worship him. And she's crying. And I said, don't cry. Those girls don't know God. Because to know God, to read his word and to understand what he's done for us, how much he loves us, the most natural thing in the world is to worship him. Folks, if you know God, you don't see any arrogance in the fact he desires our worship. You recognize that he's worthy of it. It's not arrogance. He's worthy of our worship. When you truly understand who God is and what he's done for you, you will worship. Let's pray together. Father, God, we read the description of Revelation and it amazes me how horrendously bad the seals and trumpets and bold judgments are and yet people turn from you. They turn to something they could create with their own hands and Father, we see men and women doing that around us today. And God, we just proclaim, we acknowledge that your word tells us that one day Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, you are Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you that we've had the privilege of doing that now. So, Father, I, I, I pray just, Lord, that you would encourage the hearts of those here who know you, who are follow, have followed you as Lord and Savior. God, comfort them. We've read the end of the story. We get to spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth because all of this is going away. And God, if there's someone here that does not know you, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. God, I pray today would be the day they would speak to one of their group leaders about how they could know Christ or talk to one of us after the service in the back. How you could know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you're a child of God. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.